for our passage today. It's in Ephesians 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Ephesians 2, verse 13. Okay. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Our passage starts off with a very emphatic statement when he says, For He Himself is our peace. The, the original language is really kind of underscoring, almost italicizing. This is referring, hey, Christ Himself is our peace. He's not only the one who makes peace, brings peace, but He is peace. He, he embodies peace. Christ alone is the true peacemaker and bridge builder. In fact, we could go further and say that, that Jesus is the only peacemaker. Because why do you need peace between people? Because of sin creates barriers and separations. There's pride, envy, jealousy, uh, selfishness, all kinds of things. It's all from sin, and Jesus alone deals with the sin problem of humankind. And so he is really the only peacemaker. You will never have peace between people apart from Christ. There will never be peace in the Middle East between Palestinians and Jews without Jesus Christ. There will never be peace in America with all the barriers that are here apart from people turning to Jesus. He, he embodies, he, he is peace. Now this passage, more than any other passage in the New Testament, emphasizes peace. There were four terms there, if, if uh, you, you were counting there, about peace and, and a couple more about him uh, killing the hostility and obliterating the dividing wall. And so it emphasizes Jesus' peace. Now, in what way does Jesus bring peace? Well, the New Testament would teach three basic ways. The first way is not in our passage, but the fact is that, that when we're overwhelmed with problems, grief, grief heartache, uh, and we call out to Jesus, He brings this supernatural peace into our lives. John 14, 1 would reflect that when it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So He gives us peace in our hearts. But that kind of peace is not in this passage. But two other kinds are both here. One is peace with God. That is because Jesus Christ removes our, the, the barrier between us and God, our sin, by dying in our place on the cross. By, because He deals with our sin, then we can have peace with God. There may be no barriers anymore. Romans 5.1 would be a great expression of that. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that is justified, made right with God by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, something that deep in the human heart all of us long for, to have peace with God. He gives us that peace. And because of that peace, He also gives us peace in the body of Christ between very different people, at times very difficult people, at times uh, people who are hostile to each other. He brings different people together in the body of Christ. Because if, if a bunch of separate people out here are different and even hostile to one another, and they're brought to God... Because of the cross, they're brought to, to, to the one God. We're all brought up here from every, everywhere. There's only one God, and so we're together, united 
and our Savior, Jesus Christ, one body. So Jesus Christ brings not only peace with God vertically, he brings peace with each other horizontally. Now, in this passage, he is dealing with the primary hostility and barrier in the early church, and that was between Jew and Gentile. Now, let's just be real clear on this because you cannot make heads or tails of the New Testament until you get some feeling, not just knowledge, but some feeling of the depth of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient Middle East and the ancient Roman Empire. So it goes way back to Genesis 12. Um, God chooses a man to start a people, Abraham, to start the Jewish people. And they were going to be God's chosen people. And through them, God always intended to bless all the peoples of the earth. And that was Abraham's heart. But over the, over the decades, over the centuries, they lost their purpose. They lost their way and no longer sought to be a blessing to all peoples, but rather separate from all peoples, feeling uh, superior to all peoples. And, and over time, they had nothing to do with the non-Jews that they called the Gentiles. And in fact, in the, in the first century... Uh, these were some of their rules about Gentiles and hanging out with them. Uh, you, you could never, a Jew could not go to the home of a Gentile. A Gentile could not go into your home. You could, certainly could not have a meal with a Gentile. You referred to them as dogs because they were ceremonially unclean. They weren't even circumcised. And, and um, every day you would thank God as part of your daily prayers. Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. So extensive hostility condescension and really hatred. And it was reciprocated by the Gentiles. So when you think about Jews and Gentiles, think about, um, you, it wouldn't be an analogy even here today, but, a, but in the Middle East, maybe a, a radical Palestinian uh, PLO kind of a guy and a Jewish right-winger kind of guy, the hostility that might be there and other places around the globe. Deep, deep hostility. And what Paul is saying, that these Jews and Gentiles in the same city, who each one came to Christ, you are now one together in Christ. And so, in the early church, the Jewish people who came to Christ and the Gentile people who came to Christ no longer refer to themselves as Jews and Gentiles, but as members of a third race, followers of Christ. We are a new people. We are a new community. We're not, not, not really... Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, we're just Christians. Now, this is Paul's enormous, emphatic point many times in this passage. Verse 14, by the way, this passage is going to have the deepest theology and the most practical relevance to our daily lives in a divided America, in a divided world, as you're going to see. So in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile. He's made us both one, no barriers. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh refers to the cross, in his body when he paid for our sins. He's broken it down. He's, he's taken this wall of barrier, hostility between Jews and Jesus, and he just obliterated it, canceled it. Now, what's interesting is that there was a literal wall that probably was in his mind that was a metaphor of this uh, barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And this is what happened. The temple grounds, high up on the Mount Zion, the, the temple grounds today, uh, outside the temple there was an inner courtyard that only Jews could go into. And then there was an, outward, uh, an outer courtyard that 
Gentile proselytes who were converting to Judaism that they could go to. And on the wall between the inner courtyard and the outer courtyard, there would be a sign that said, no Gentiles allowed on threat of death. If you Gentiles try to come into our courtyard, the inner courtyard for Jewish-born people only, you're responsible if you get killed. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Wood's Wood Edge kind of has some barriers out here and, and hey, uh, sir, if, if you're not part of the inner group and you try to come in here, we'll kill you. I mean, it's amazing the hostility, the deep hostility uh, at this time between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying, guys, no more. That's gone in Christ. You're no longer Jews or Gentiles or any other barrier is insignificant. You are now part of the people of God, the third race. That is the only thing that matters. And he says he's broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility. And then he goes on to say, how does he do it? By, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Really? Uh, what's he talking about here? You mean he abolishes the commandments in the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments, beginning in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, and it goes on and on and on from Exodus 20 through uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They've been abolished in Christ? You bet it has. Jesus Christ on the cross abolished them. End of the period of the law. New period, new day, new era. It is now the period of the church. Now, this law, the Mosaic law, uh, it has some commandments in it that are just right and wrong. They're, they're what we call the moral law. And God actually puts the moral law on the hearts of every person. And they're always right and wrong. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not uh, uh, put anything else before God. Those are always right and wrong, and they apply to today, too, and, and to all of us. But most of the law, the, the huge majority of the law... It's not of that nature. It's not moral law. It's a ceremonial law. It's sacrificial system law. It's dietary law. It's uh, keeping the Sabbath, uh, uh, being, little infant boys being circumcised. And all of those things tend to separate Israel from everybody else. And at the cross, Jesus abolishes it. All that's gone. All that's gone. He abolishes it. And that uh, was kind of the foundation of the, of the barrier between them. And, and they've got to realize it, it's a whole new day because of Jesus Christ and the cross. There is no longer any barrier or division within the body of Christ. Not just Jews and Gentiles, but by implication, because we're all brought to the Father, one God. We're all uh, come, come to God through one Savior, rescued by the blood of Christ. We're in one church, one body. There are no barriers in the, blood of, in the body of Christ. Now, that means any other so-called seemingly barriers are trivial, unimportant, and, and uh, we should not regard them at all. What are the implications? Well, let me just name three or four or five. I, I am an American. I was born here in America, and I'm an American citizen. I love my country. Just like those of you who are born in other countries around the world, you love your country. You should, and, and that's a great thing. But, but the fact that I was born in America, that I'm an American, is trivial. It's nothing and less than nothing compared to the fact that my identity is in Jesus Christ. My, my real citizenship is in heaven, and that trumps by far my identity as an American or as a Texan or any other identity that I've got. Um, 
from time to time, there are a group of dear Iranians who come to Wood's Edge. They live down in the southwest part of Houston. And, and actually, I saw some of them come in today. Last week, there was a bigger group. There are about eight or nine of them, I think. And from time to time, they come. Let me tell you their story a little bit. They were, they're, they're Iranians from Iran. They're, they were Muslims. And they migrated to Turkey and uh, lived there for a, a couple of years until they could get to the United States. And they moved to Houston, the southwest part of Houston. And, and I forget... Uh, if they came to Christ in Iran or in Turkey, but now these uh, dear fellow believers who grew up Muslim are followers of Jesus, and they love Jesus just like any of us do, and they're, they're the most dear people, and when I see them, I always kind of light up. Now, just think with me about this. Here are some folks from a diff very different background than me. They're from Iran. They spoke uh, Farsi. They uh, lived in Turkey. They spoke Turkish. They uh, live in southwest Houston. But, but think about it, that my bonds with them are so much deeper than my bonds are with my neighbors, American-born, Texan-born, same socioeconomic level, that kind of thing. My bonds with these dear brothers and sisters from Iran is so much deeper than my bonds with these Americans over here. Because my bonds with these Americans, the, the identity I have as an American or as a Texan or this kind of economic status or something like that, those are trivial, nothing and less than nothing. These bonds are eternal, and they are all important. And so our real ties and bonds are with folks in the body of Christ. So in terms of ethnic and national and country identity, what does this passage say about the the great divisions in our country right now because of the presidential election that we've been experiencing the last year or so. Now, when uh, the, the November 8th election results were announced, I mean, the, the, the barriers and divisions politically in our country just deepened even more. And at many places within the church, so that there are Christians on on both sides of that, you know, I'm just completely betrayed by that. How could that person, you know, be a Christian? And if for you, a person's political identity uh, trumps their uh, being saved by Jesus Christ, if that is the most important thing to you, if you feel like, man, it's just absolutely devastated if Trump got elected, or conversely, if you feel like, man, the Messiah has arrived in Donald Trump getting elected, um, uh, let me tell you this morning, I would call both of those positions idolatry, the idolatry of politics, who are looking for politics for the ultimate answers rather than looking to Jesus Christ. And the answers are not there. Now, I vote, I've got political views, but they are trivial compared to my identity in Jesus Christ. And if you are kind of like the Jews and Gentiles in the first country century. You can't hardly even come into the home of somebody who's, who's Democrat or somebody who's Republican. Something is wrong because you are part of the third race, which, triumph, which trumps all political associations. And so would we let divisions be in the church because of who you support politically? If so, Jesus Christ is not your Lord, but politics is your Lord, and you don't even know it until I'm telling you right now. But it's so. Do not let politics trump Jesus Christ. Okay, if that's not enough controversy for you, let me <laughs> wade in a little bit more. Um, 
What does this mean for all the tensions in the United States about immigrants? If you are a believer, one's country of origin is trivial. It's nothing and less than nothing compared to our bonds in Jesus Christ. And we are not of those Christians who are worldly, swept along with the common current political views in the United States, but rather we are taking our cues and beliefs from the Bible and Scripture. And so, oh, man, if there are some dear Iranian folks who come from another country and they're bonded in Jesus Christ, that trumps everything else. You guys know that Houston is now the most international city in the United States. One out of four people in greater Houston were born in a foreign country, including many people in this room. And we welcome them. We're thrilled at it because, you know, uh, we look at them through the eyes of the gospel. That we are bonded as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And if they're not yet brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what a mission opportunity that God's sending the nations to us. And we look at it through that lens. Um, some of you are struggling right now, probably bristling. Um, this does not mean that there are not some specific views that we could differ about, about immigration matters. But it, but it, but it matters that there's a different attitude for the believer than for the non-believer. We're not primarily worried about our jobs here in our country. We're worried about the kingdom of God and the gospel and loving all people and treating them with the love and grace and forgiveness that Jesus trumped And that just colors everything. And so uh, that just sets a whole different context for the believer. We are not of those people who are uh, taking our cues from the folks around us. The Bible would call that being worldly. But rather, we are godly. We take our cues from God. What does it say about racial tension in America? That's been in uh, America all of my life. In fact, I grew up in a small town in, in Texas and went to a, a segregated school. Even though 1954, Brown versus Topeka Supreme Court decision uh, you know, said that shouldn't happen. But, but until I was in the eighth grade, there were segregated schools. And uh, there has been um, racial tension uh, for 200 years and still today. And last summer, it sort of erupted. Now, you, you can tell the biblical perspective on this. So, someone's race uh, it means nothing. But the only issue is, does that person know Jesus Christ as their Savior? That's the only thing. And, and, and their racial background means nothing. And by the way, this whole racial concept, I don't think is a valid one. All of us stem from the same two people, Adam and Eve. And they're just blends and differences uh, of all kinds. I, I don't know if anybody's completely, uh, you know, the, the same race. And it doesn't matter. And by the way, back to the immigrants, uh, you may be uh, born here in America, but we're all immigrants. Just go back a few generations. We're all immigrants. You know, in the body of Christ, all of these barriers that so divide our country and so divide our world are obliterated. And the biblical teaching is that all of us in Christ are leveled at the foot of the cross. There are no second-class Christians. And so there are no black Christians, white Christians, Hispanic Christians, Asian Christians, just Christians, that uh, our deepest loyalties and, are, are of Jesus Christ alone. Galatians 3.28 says this, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And every way that's true. Now, one of the biggest barriers in the United States right now is economic class, social economic status. There are no barriers in the church of Jesus Christ economically, socioeconomically. Trivial. They do not matter. And in all these other areas, have you been divorced or not? Is that a barrier? Oh, no. No second-class Christians in the body of Christ. And some of you who have been divorced think, think because you've been listening to Satan's voice, you think you're second-class. You've been listening to a lie. Single, married, uh, divorced, not divorced, wealthy, poor, black, white, foreign-born, immigrant, all those barriers are obliterated. And if we are Christ-first Christians, that's the way we think. And that's the way we live. It's a testimony to your hearts that most of you like that. And uh, maybe all of you. Um, in the providence of God, we came to the, I think, the most powerful passage in the New Testament on diversity. Today on Martin Luther King weekend. Isn't that good? That is so timely. And Martin Luther King, flawed, su su such that a lot of white people think that, oh, man, he just kind of disqualified because uh, he had some adultery, that sort of thing. Well, you know, that, that was uh, lamentable. But let me tell you how God sees David. God does not see David the way you and I see David. When we tend to think of David, we tend to think of him with Bathsheba and Uriah. But my Bible tells me that when Jesus Christ came, God called him the son of David. And I just read in 2 Kings, and God called himself the God of David. And God does not see David in his sin, but as a lifetime of pleasing God, the God of grace. And that's the way we ought to see Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King heroically, courageously, imperfectly led the fight against extensive racism and racial injustice and racial oppression in America, including the world that I grew up in. And tragically, many, many Christians were on the wrong side of that battle. And a hundred years before, in the middle of the 1800s in America, with all of the slavery question, tragically, so many Christians were on the wrong side of that battle. And it must not be today that Christians here at Wood's Edge are on the wrong side of the fight for racial justice and equality in America. We must not be. And I don't have all the answers for what all that means, but I know we are for racial justice and loving one another. Martin Luther King put it this way. When he was in jail in 1963 in Birmingham, he said there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. He says in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And we too today, Wood's Edge and beyond across America, we must not be a church that ref reflects like a thermometer the, the beliefs and convictions of our society, but we must be a thermostat setting the pace, setting the tone as salt and light in the society. So that's our calling. That means we ought to be the first one to, to reach across a racial barrier or any other prejudice or discrimination of any kind. We ought to be the leaders and the champions in that. So that's most of the passage.
he, he briefly, uh, more quickly, uh, talks about the foundation of all this is that God brings us together because he brings us all to God, brings Christians to God. Verse 16, and that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, always through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, the Jews. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. By the way, note the Trinitarian language of many of Paul's passages, including this one. If you don't look for it, you, you might miss it, but it's the kind of assumption of the Trinity that the New Testament writers just have without thinking. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, the point of the verse, of course, is our access. Now, those of you who work for ExxonMobil or Shell or United Airlines or any other huge corporation, you probably don't have access to the very human, flawed CEO at the top of the company. You just don't have that kind of access. Just the inner circle. Or the President of the United States, uh, besides his immediate family, there's probably only three or four or five people who have free access to walk in that Oval Office at any time, just the inner circle. But think about this. They're just men, mortal men and women. But the sovereign God of the universe, who is perfect and holy and great in every way, you have been granted access 24-7. Just come right on in. Just come right on in anytime. And... Um, and what, what, the way Hebrews 4 puts it is, is, let us enter with confidence that we might receive mercy and help, mercy and grace in time of need. So whatever we're burdened with and, and overwhelmed with, we can with confidence come to the Father and receive mercy and grace in time of need. Now, some of you, uh, maybe you, you feel like you've been a little bit sinful lately. You hadn't had good attitudes and things like that. And, and Satan's going to be telling you, hey, you can't even pray. You can't go to church. You can't read your Bible because God's mad at you. What a lie. God has washed away all your sins in Jesus. And at any time, with confidence, you have access to the Father. You just come and receive His grace afresh. Access to God. All of us. And there are no barriers. So, deepest theology, but the greatest practical relevance. Reconciliation to God, reconciliation to one another in the body of Christ, double reconciliation. There are no inherent barriers in the church of race, ethnicity, political party, wealthy or poor, single or married, immigrant or native born, or anything else. And not only are there no inherent barriers, so there is diversity in the church, but we could go further than that and say we, we welcome and pursue diversity in the church. It's not just that we accept it or tolerate it, but we pursue it because, well, there's several reasons because. I'm going to give you two of them quickly. Because diversity in the church inherently exalts Christ. Because how is that diversity made? Only through the power of the shed blood of Jesus. The only way that very different people, Jews and Gentiles, there are ISIS folks coming to Christ in the world. ISIS and, and you know, right-wingers or so. The only way that can happen is through the cross of Jesus. And so every time you see diversity in the body of Christ, of worshipers, that's Christ exalting on the power of the cross. It's inherently good. It's inherently good. But not only is it exalt Christ because of, uh, of the cross is the only way it happens, it is your destiny and mine. 
because you are headed to an endless eternity in heaven with people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And what the Bible teaches is that the, the heavens, uh, that, that, that heaven is going to be full of diversity in every way. And that is a glorious thing. About 10 years ago, I was in Dubai. And Don and Becky Donaldson in our church take me to a church in Dubai. Now, a little bit background Dubai, if you haven't been there, but Dubai is 85% expat. So only about 15% of the people are kind of Arabs and uh, live in that area, from that area. But because they've got a lot of money there, oil money, uh, there are people, workers coming from all over the world. In fact, Houston's own Halliburton is based in Dubai. And there's all kind of expats there. And I go in this church there, and I'm looking around at people, and there's, there's no one group of people that kind of predominates. There are clearly folks who are from the heart of Africa, and clearly people from Southeast Asia like the Philippines, and from South Asia like India and Pakistan, and there are Chinese folks there, and there are Australian folks there, Western Europe, all over Western Europe. There are folks from America and just all over the globe, and there's no one group that predominates. And I look around and think, man, this is incredible. This is what heaven's going to be like. And it was so rich. I just was, was uh, awed by it. And this is our destiny. A- and we not only accept it, but we pursue it. And so a stated dream of mine for Wood's Edge, for some time, if you've been around here, you know it, is that we want more and more diversity. Now, I appreciate the diversity we've got. Uh, we probably have 50 countries represented here, certainly 40. But I, I bet 50. I wish we could count. Um, since we left the woodlands and moved out to spring, we've got more socioeconomic diversity. We have uh, uh, more and more African Americans and Hispanics and Asians, though we're lagging behind on Asians. And that is all so God-honoring and God-glorifying. And because this is our attitude as biblical Christians, then we welcome it, uh, encourage it, on a Sunday morning before or after the service, you see somebody that looks differently than you, then uh, introduce yourself. Greet them. Be glad they're here. Light up. You can also greet people that look like you, but especially <laughs> if they look differently than you. Invite them. As Christ followers who have the love and grace of Jesus pouring into us, we pour that love and grace out to other people around us, no matter if they're quite different than us. And that honors Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Friend, if you're in the room and you've never been reconciled with God, the deepest longing of your heart, maybe unarticulated, is peace with God who made you. And right now, if you're willing to humble yourself and admit you need a Savior, He'll do it. He'll do it. Sometimes people might wonder, well, how do you become a Christian? In fact, I was asked that last week. I don't know how to do that. And uh, I said, you, you just call out to a Savior. You put your trust in a Savior. And you can do that right now. Just right where you're standing, just breathe a prayer. Jesus, I need a Savior. Come and save me. That's it. You call out to a Savior. Lord God, I pray for the rest of us that we would be People lovers because we have been loved by the great God. Lord, I pray that we would be thermostats and not thermometers setting the pace in our society. Give us grace. Give us grace.
Lord, thank you. That's the heart of this congregation. Bless us in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.